while everyone else got wiped out, we were left last man standing, and somehow we were able to use that to our advantage on the experience that we had. And as an entrepreneur, I think a lot of people jump the gun and get investors. And investors can be great, and they can be very helpful, but they can also be sort of very distracting. Sometimes investors, they take up a lot of time, they take up a lot of their distraction at the end of the day, which is always sort of interesting. I'm not a big fan of working for someone, so the whole reason I'm an entrepreneur is so I don't have to work for anyone. So (laughs) an investor just sounds like I have to work for someone, so I guess that doesn't appeal to me very much. We stand today. The Business Method with a shout The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics for location independence. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring successful entrepreneurs and high-profile people dissecting their online and location-independent business models. We dissect the different methods, tools, and tactics of high-performance online entrepreneurs and high-caliber people in a series format. On our first series, we interviewed 100 entrepreneurs in 100 days that had built businesses creating $100,000 or more annually. On our second series, we are interviewing 100 entrepreneurs that have built location-independent businesses that generate a million dollars or more in annual revenue. There's a growing movement of people building these caliber of businesses, and we are getting behind the minds, the logic, and the science of what it takes to build businesses like this. On top of that, we also gather entrepreneurs at events and retreats around the world. This October, we are having our annual event in Thailand, Get Shit Done Live. It's 10 days of high-performance productivity, targeted collaboration, and rapid execution designed for entrepreneurs to get a lot of work done in a little amount of time. Some say it's like 10 months of work in 10 days. There's a magic that happens when brilliant minds come together to push one another towards productive execution. That is exactly what this retreat is about. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com. That is thebusinessmethod.com. Now, let's jump in today's show. The Business Method. Bootstrapping is quite common in today's world. More and more, we see entrepreneurs starting out with little money, just an idea, and a few years later, they take that business to a million dollars plus. Today's guest is Dave Williams, and he's the founder of Nomad X, a simple and easy solution for remote workers and entrepreneurs to find places to stay while traveling with like-minded people. Dave has started and sold several multi-seven-figure companies over his entrepreneurial career. Today on the show, we get a chat with Dave about his experience bootstrapping through the dot-com wave, how to navigate through economic cycles, focusing on a niche, and the importance of speed in business. It's a fun episode, guys, and without further ado, let's welcome Dave to the show. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Listeners, welcome to the show, and I'm excited to introduce Dave Williams. Dave is just across the town from me in Lisbon, not too far, but we're still recording this over Skype. How you doing today, Dave? Hey, Chris. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. We just met recently at the DNX conference, and both of us were speakers, and I was actually introduced to you beforehand from Marcel Gasser, who was a guest of the show a few weeks back and thought you would be a good fit. But I started learning more and more about you when we actually were sharing a taxi on the way to the conference dinner. (laughs) And you started telling me about your experience as an entrepreneur. And I thought, yeah, Dave would be great to come on the show. So we're going to talk about, you know, some of your experience, because I think it's really cool that you've, you have experienced before the dot-com 
uh, and the internet boom as a bootstrapping entrepreneur, which is great because I want to hear about that. But also that you're involved in um, location independence and building a platform that's really valuable for digital nomads and location independent entrepreneurs, remote entrepreneurs, remote workers called Nomad X. But anyway, I'd just like to say welcome, man. I'm glad to have you. Hey, thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm good friends with uh, Marcel and I think also Azul, who was speaking at the conference. You guys seem like you guys knew each other for a while, but I think as we sort of get out there, all of our paths start crossing eventually, so it's interesting (laughs) to see who I've networked myself into here. Yeah, it's it's very true. Now, uh, you're living in Lisbon now, or south of Lisbon, actually, and that's kind of your base for the moment. I'm curious, why did you pick the south of south of Portugal? Uh, well, my wife and I, uh, after our last startup, we were in New York City and we sold the company um, and it reached the point where we were ready to leave um, and do something new. And so we just decided that there was really nothing left for us, I guess, in the United States. And we had sort of, we've traveled a lot and we really loved Europe. Um, and uh, we had spent some time traveling and we actually came across Portugal as we were hiking the Camino de Santiago in the north in Spain. We had extra time and hiked down through the south into Portugal from Camina through to uh, Porto. And that's really how we first discovered Portugal and we loved it. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And then we came back again for some yoga and some surf. And then we also did some more hiking in the south on the route to Vicentina, which is an amazing coastal hike. And we just really fell in love with it. And we went home. Uh, we were hiking a little mountain near us, and we just decided we wanted to move to Portugal. And so we sold, <laughs> sold our stuff, sold our house, put everything in storage, and then we bought a place here. And the place that we, where we bought it is down in the, the northern Algarve, a place called uh, Arafana, which is very close to a uh, little town of Algezor, which is where Azul lives, actually. That's where I met him, down there. But it's a beautiful kind of uh, old fisherman's town that's now, it's more of a, a surfer's paradise. Um, where people usually are in camper vans and where there's surfboards and just a small little town. And my wife and I just fell in love with it. And we've been wanting to learn how to surf and we love hiking. And it's fairly close proximity, only a few hours from Lisbon and then a few hours from Sevilla. And you really feel like you're on the edge of the world. So for us, that was kind of uh, the antithesis of what we were experiencing in New York City. So we were ready for something just to challenge ourselves, do something totally different. Um, and so that was awesome. And then we came over here and Web Summit was just getting started and we sort of realized there's an entrepreneurial culture here in Portugal and a lot going on with technology and it just kind of uh, swept me away, I guess. So I, I came here really just for the, the people in the country, but then but now we've started a company here as well, which is which makes it even more exciting. So it's been fun. That's great. You know, for, for the listeners, there's, I was shocked. I came to Lisbon for the first time last year and uh, I was shocked how amazing the city was. You know, it's it's beautiful. I, I kind of consider it the San Francisco of Europe, except with good weather. And, you know, uh, the tech scene isn't that big as San Francisco, but it's growing. It's quite, you know, Web Summit's here. A uh, significant amount of entrepreneurial conferences are here and entrepreneurs that are in the city. And it's just, I think, a really up-and-coming 
great place to to be if you're in that entrepreneur or nomad scene. But I want to ask you, Dave, I've done a Camino de Santo, Santiago also, and we talked about that a bit earlier. But, you know, for other nomads or travelers or people that are going around the world, I think it's an incredible experience. And I'm curious, you know, what was some of your biggest takeaways other than moving, deciding to move to Portugal from hiking the Camino de Santiago? Yeah, well, I think uh, we have something in common also because I think we both hiked it twice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I think it just uh, the first time it was an amazing experience. And uh, it was like no other sort of travel I'd done before. So my wife and I, we've done. You know, we've been through the Himalayas and we've been down to Machu Picchu. We've done all these amazing hikes and had these incredible experiences. But I feel like, you know, all of our travels, nothing could really compare to the Camino. And there's just something about it because you have people that are there and they're on this this journey, which might, you know, it's only maybe for a month or for a few weeks or for longer, depending how far they go. Um, but it's like a it's like an ex- experience. Of, it's like like a life. It's like your life kind of compressed into a month. Because on the journey, you meet all these different types of people, and some you'll stick around with, some you might not see for a few days, you run into them again, and some you might not even ever see again, or you meet them at the end at the uh, during the ceremony when they welcome the pilgrims. And so I think it's just kind of a, it's sort of an incredible life experience. Plus, I love the, the you're hiking every day, so there's a exertion, and I think as you the more you hike and the more time you have, it really gives you like a, it's almost like a mental detox where it really gives you a chance to think very, very deeply about things that you might not have had much time to really think about or consider in your life. So I think it's, it's, it's good It's good kind of a halftime activity, I think, as you're kind of starting to get older and you may like certain things about yourself or other things you'd like to change. It really gives you a chance to really reflect in a very deep way. And then I think once it's over, you know, you can emerge and obviously go back to your normal life, but it gives you some tools that you can use to kind of help assess um, decisions that you make as you go forward or, you know, things that are important to you in life. Um, and then also making a lot of good friends, you know, meet, meeting people on the trail and sharing with them, you know, things that are, uh, you may not normally share on a vacation. You know, people are there for a, some sort of spiritual reason or they lost a loved one or, you know, they, they've recovered from a disease or something's happened significant. So it's, it's quite different than going to the beach and drinking margaritas, but yeah. you know, it's, it's sort of, a you know, it's a very spiritual kind of experience, which I think many people are missing in their day-to-day lives or sort of desperate to kind of have these sorts of experiences. So I think that's why it's becoming so popular um, in addition to some of the, you know, the movies and the books. And now everyone's getting really excited about it. So it's a great thing. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and I think I'll hike it again uh, sometime in the next decade, but I'm not in a hurry. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, um, thanks for sharing that. And I want to jump into your experience as an entrepreneur, Dave, because we were chatting and I know you got your your start back in the day before even the internet boom happened and you were bootstrapping. Um, can you tell us uh, the businesses that you have started and then continue to run over your career as an entrepreneur? Sure. Um yeah, so I, I kind of consider myself just a, an entrepreneur. I'm just, right now, I just had the fortune of being born in this digital age. So <laughs> if it wasn't, it, I'd be doing something. I don't know what it would be if it wasn't this day and age. But I kind of got lucky because I got started in the very, very early days when the uh, internet commerce was first getting started back, you know, in 96, 97, 98. Um, and really the first business we started with was helping my father, who had a, has a law firm. He does a lot of incorporations. And he's based in Delaware. Um, 
actually taking an incorporation business, which was just a small little family business, and bringing it on the internet. Um, and I don't talk about that a whole lot, but that was really the first one. So that, that business is called Pink Now, and that still exists today. So that one actually, when we started, I think he had 800 clients, and now we've got like 20,000. You know? oh, so wow. it's, it's turned into a big business. He says it's the, the minnow that swallowed the whale because the law firm used to be much bigger than the incorporation business. Now the incorporation business is much bigger than the law firm. So, <laughs> and that business still exists, and that's more of a family business, actually. So, um, And they came to visit here us, us this summer, actually. With Nomad X, we put on a corporate week for them and showed them all around the city. And so they were really excited about that. Most of them had never been to Europe or I don't think any of them had been to Lisbon. So that was fun. Um, after that, I guess I kind of I got cut my uh, teeth a little bit at that. That kind of got me started. I saw the power of the Internet. Um, and then I started another company. The main one, which is probably the, which has been the most successful, is a company called 360i, which I started back in 1998. Uh, which was a digital agency with a specialty in search um, and just bootstrapped it. Like my partner and I, I think we both put in like maybe 10 grand each. We grew the business just organically um, through the dot-com period. Um, and then we had a major falling out post-dot-com. We had to lay off a lot of people, regroup, and then refocus primarily just on search. And during that time, we also built a technology platform called Search Ignite, which is now called Ignition One. Um, and we combined those two businesses and then sold them uh, to a New York-based firm in 2005. Um, I stayed on for a couple of years, but the, the 360i business is now over 1,000 people, and Search Ignite is over 500 um, global businesses, and they've all been very successful. So as I'm coming off of that success, I took a year off, did a lot of traveling with my wife, I reflected, um, and this was right when social media was really starting to take off. MySpace was the largest at the time. And I think Facebook might have had 30 million, 40 million users. Um, and we focused the next company was ad services and technology, specifically on social media and then primarily Facebook. We were one of the first five global partners with Facebook to get access to their ad API and then built a proprietary technology platform on top of it. This was back in like oh, wow. 2009, 2010, focused primarily on servicing the ad agencies because um, the, the Facebook was really focused on the brands and no one was helping the agencies. So we... We specifically focused on the agency side of the business, uh, moved the company to New York, and we started growing rapidly. Offices in like Boston and Chicago and London and you know San Francisco and L.A. and all over the place. Um, and then we got an offer to buy the company a couple of years later while we're up in New York uh, from Gannett, who owns USA Today and Cars.com, and they're one of the big kind of publishing companies. Um, so they bought the company and we did the transition and that last company actually doesn't exist anymore. So <laughs> although financially I did the best on that one, um, the most successful company was my first one. Um, and now I'm focused on this new company, Nomad X. Um, my wife and I have been traveling for the last five years and we just saw this need uh, with a lot of our friends that were trying to live the digital nomad lifestyle. That was very hard for them to find midterm housing as they're traveling. And then as we spent more and more time here in Portugal, we saw that as a primary issue uh, for the nomads. Um, and we you know, we saw there's a lot of very premium offerings in the market, the remote years or the outsites or other companies that are coming in that are more 1,500, maybe up to 2,500 a month. Mm -hmm. um, we're just seeing for general nomad, you know, that's not really in their budget range. They're typically looking for something more in the four to 600 range, plus or minus, um, depending on the city. And so we wanted to come up with a solution that actually really met their budget that was easy for them to find and really sight unseen. So we came up with this model for um, spare bedrooms is really the primary model, but 
you know, digital people or professionals that are local here that have an extra bedroom that want to host a nomad for one, two, three plus months at a time. And kind of the original Airbnb model, um, where it's much more of a local experience, and then also building community around that as well. So having social events and different things that they have access to, or just to help curate what actually is going around, going on here in town um, currently. So making it very easy for them to network with each other, to have access to the social events, plus you know, connecting with other locals. Um, and then on top of that, we will have our own you know, signature properties, um, where these might be larger size, 5 to 10 to 12 bedroom, um, either buildings or on multiple floors or even our standalone kind of unit like the like the outside has here in town or like you're seeing with some of these other programs like remote, like uh, Rome, but in a price point that's much more uh, compatible with the budget yeah. for the Nomad. So we want it to be more of a market share play versus just going after a sliver of the premium market and competing in that segment. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea because being a remote entrepreneur myself, I know the challenges with finding a place and then getting connected and, and Airbnb has kind of just gotten difficult over the years, I guess. It used to be uh, really great, but it's still the best, you know, one of the best options or easiest options, but it's still, I think it's just kind of getting more challenging and more expensive for sure. And any platform that can plug remote entrepreneurs or digital nomads in to a local scene with other, you know, remote entrepreneurs or digital nomads, that's that's a, a big win. And you guys, you guys are only in uh, Portugal at the moment, but you're ex- you're working on expanding to different countries, correct? Right. Well, I just think as an entrepreneur, like one of the things I found is that you're really trying to focus and just be the best at one thing is a good place to start. So I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of companies out there in these different markets. And we, we saw that a lot of the companies were moving around pretty frequently after every month or two months and may not really be a true expert in the one location. So I think for us, you know, if people are coming to stay with us, we really want to have that market market expertise and be really connected into the markets. Um, it's really important for us. And so we're starting here in Lisbon and Porto. But we also want to be in other little smaller cities all throughout the country as well. So it's not just about being in the big cities, but also giving, allowing people to have exposure to smaller towns that have a thriving uh, nomad scene. It just might be a lot smaller in places like Viana de Castello in the north. They have an amazing co-working place. There's amazing festivals, kiteboarding, surfing, all right there. So having you know, little locations in places like that or Esposende, which is a little bit north of Porto or even down through the south. Um, we're talking to some people down in Milfantas, which is a beautiful little uh, beach town two hours south of Lisbon, and then obviously all the way down to Lagos. And there's activity, kind of a decent amount of activity down in Lagos as well. So, you know, really just being the experts on Portugal and helping people to really experience Portugal more than just arriving the city and having the city experience. We want people to really be able to experience the country. And when they, after they leave, after three or four months, I've really seen everything, or at least have had the opportunity for that. So we're you know, we have some of our own stuff going on. We're also partnering with some of these 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 uh, week long type camps, um, trying to negotiate discounts. Um, so I know, especially for entrepreneurs, they love kiteboarding. So mm-hmm. trying to get connected into the kiteboarding camps and get people into the country that way, and then funnel them in. Hopefully, they want to stay for longer than just a week at the camp, but ideally spend some to- longer amount of time in a Porto or in a list of other places. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, makes sense. And I think it's a fabulous idea. Um, uh, and excited to see you grow and, and take over. But I, I want to chat kind of about a few things. I know I was um, excited to hear that you are interested to hear more about you bootstrapping your companies. Now, there's a lot of people that get to a certain level of entrepreneurship and they'll start taking uh, investments and, and working with VCs. And sometimes that works out really well. Many times it does and sometimes not so well. But how come you decided or you focused on bootstrapping your businesses over the years? Um, well, it's, it kind of dates back to the early dot-com period, which uh, we started our company was more of a services business. So we just kind of we, we eat what we kill, I guess. You know? mm-hmm. um, and I was also kind of very young at the time and not as connected into the investment scene. So... Um, for us, you know, we had a couple folks that were interested, but we just never really moved forward on the investment side for whatever reason. And that's really, I think, what helped save us after the dot-com fallout was that we didn't have investors because all the companies that did have investors pretty much got shut down. And we just slimmed down to the bare bones. And I say, you know, that my experience was more about survival than success because I think while everyone else got wiped out, we were left last man standing and Somehow we were able to use that to our advantage, all the experience that we had and sort of the track record. Um, so, yeah. So what was the question? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was dot uh, com. Yeah. Okay. Just curious about why, you know, why you focus, why you chose to bootstrap. Oh, right. oh yeah. yeah, the bootstrap. Okay. Yeah. So the dot com, get me distracted on this dot com discussion. No worries. That was a, a painful period, but I think I learned a lot. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and then the next business, um, after we sold the first one, I had, was had the, you know, we just, we, my partners, we put a little bit of money in, we wanted to try out the business model. The company started making its own money. So it didn't, we didn't really need any third party money at that point. Um, and then I had had some success from the previous company. So I was able to use some of my own money to help fund it when we needed it. But mostly where I got most of my funding from was more through kind of debt financing. So um, especially in the companies that I had operated previously, if we had large receivables for media buys that we're doing or from clients, um, we could factor those receivables or take loans against the receivables. So we use that money not to make investments in the company or not to maybe invest in technology, but just to take care of just kind of uh, short-term cash needs that we had in the company or to make payrolls and just kind of keep everything moving along smoothly. Um and then in my last company, we did the same thing because we were, you know, the payment terms, it would take sometimes 90 to 120 days to get paid by the agencies. And meanwhile, we had still had to pay our bills. So um, using lines of credit and debt have been uh, sort of my best friend, I guess, so far <laughs> as an entrepreneur. I think a lot of people jump the gun and get investors and investors can be great um, and they can be very helpful, but they can also be sort of very distracting and to the extent they're not in your business every day, you know, it's like they're kind of seeing it from the outside, which can be very helpful from an advisory perspective. Uh, but, you know, for me, I like just being able to kind of make call the shots, be able to make the decisions on what we need to do. Um, you know, I like having that flexibility and being able to move very quickly and sort of maybe not always be maybe be a little more radical in the things that I want to do. Um, and also being able to shift the business very quickly. So I like the flexibility of, you know, if we see something that's working, being able to jump on that, or if things aren't working, be able to pivot. Um, so for a lot of my businesses, you know, just getting it started, kind of get a feel for the industry, and then usually takes me about a year or so to really kind of nail down. Here's where I think the opportunity is. Sometimes it's not always so evident when you're first getting started. So 
for most investors, they take up a lot of time, they take up a lot of their distraction. At the end of the day, you know, they're not the ones that are going to make you successful. So, mm-hmm. so uh, for better or worse, I haven't relied on them too much, except except after they bought the business. So I do have the experience of working with them, and after they bought my companies, and then you know, kind of that transitionary period, which Got is it. always sort of interesting. I'm not a big fan of working for someone. So yeah. the whole reason I'm an entrepreneur, so I don't have to work for anyone. So <laughs> an investor just sounds like I have to work for someone. So I guess that doesn't appeal to me very much. Good point. <laughs> yeah. Before the show, we were talking and you, you have two strategies that are very important for you when building a business, one focusing on a niche and the importance of speed. Could you elaborate on the importance of those and how you've used those in building businesses over the years? Well, I think especially uh, I find with a lot of entrepreneurs, uh, the challenge really with being an entrepreneur is you're seeing a lot of opportunities. And once you start a company, you start identifying more and more and more opportunities. It's just sort of an endless sort of craziness, I guess. <laughs> once, once you sort of experience that, that's when you know you're an entrepreneur. Um, but I think actually once you started a company, what a lot of people do is they tend to get too broad because they're seeing opportunities across the spectrum. Uh, and I usually, when I see that, I see that as like the number one sort of red flag if I'm talking to an entrepreneur or someone wants me to invest in their company or whatever it might be. Yeah. Um, but what I really like to see is like someone who takes a niche and they kind of focus on a niche, but they keep narrowing and narrowing and narrowing until they really find a segment that they can really be number one in that niche. Um, and a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs think they're fairly narrow in their approach, but actually they can get even more focused. So even like with me in the early stages, we were focused on search marketing. We thought that was a good focus. But the more we focus, for example, on an industry sector like a retail or media and entertainment, um, or even more as we focused at the geographical levels to be able to work more hands on with customers in the major cities, like those strategies actually were working very well for us. Um, and so I think even with social media, we're doing social media, but we're doing Facebook and we weren't just doing Facebook, we we're doing it for the ad agencies. And then we had this whole technology thing. So when we get in there and pitch against other people, um, the more focused you are, then you're going to have a, you're going to resonate much more um, with a buyer if they're in the right segment that you're going after. So you have a much higher close ratio, um, which is important. And then also um, the customers will see more value in what you're doing. So you'll actually be able to charge more. So it's like a, kind of a win-win scenario whereas if you're just general and then you're out there you've got all these people you got to pitch against and then end up having a win based on price or something or you don't you're not able to close as many of your leads you know then obviously economics don't work as well so i've always found that's important and then once you've kind of become a master at one thing you've been recognized you start attracting the best people you start getting people best clients will come to you instead of you going to them and then you can always take on other niches as you go forward so you can always expand later kind of at, at the right time. But it's always the temptation to go broad too early and not focus enough, I find. So I've seen this many times with entrepreneurs, even including myself, when uh, entrepreneurs start to go too broad, you know, and then they'll lose lose that focus on that niche. Um, what are some recommendations you would give entrepreneurs out there to so they could recognize when they may be going too broad and their focus is, is dwindling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's good to have kind of a peer group of friends that are entrepreneurs. And like for me, like almost all my friends are entrepreneurs for whatever reason, I guess. I'm just uh, the nine to five mentality just doesn't really appeal to me. But have, you know, have a group of friends, people that you trust. You can join organizations like EO, Entrepreneurs Organization. I know it's a very popular one. And the groups get together like once a month and you kind of lay out for everyone how your business is doing. You get feedback. 
um, and to help you with make some of these decisions. Because sometimes they're kind of fork in the road decisions and you don't realize it. You do it, next thing you know, you know, you've completely changed your business model or you've turned it kind of upside down. So I think in business there's always these always these sort of fork in the road decisions. So you have to kind of you treat them as such. And then I think even as you get into doing more planning, I find like a lot of the entrepreneurs you know, they do a lot of planning at their corporate jobs and then they become entrepreneurs and then they're like, thank God, I don't have to do any more planning. You know? <laughs> so no one does any planning. They don't set up, okay, what are my goals for next year? What's my goal for next quarter? And then and then keep track of that and then reflect on it each month or each quarter. Um, I think that's very important. Um, and just kind of set short-term goals for yourself. And then you kind of reflect on these things and see if you're getting yourself off track, if you're on track, if you're remaining focused. Um, if you don't have these kind of planning cycles, it's the business just kind of takes on a life of its own. And I think that can be, kind of hold you back quite a bit too, because you kind of lose, you just get caught in the weeds and you're not as focused on you know, working on the business versus working for the business. And so I think a lot of entrepreneurs get stuck just working for the business instead of really trying to cultivate and have the business work for them. So very true. Um, but I think, yeah, speed is super important. So as you're as an entrepreneur, that's the advantage you have over these bigger companies is they're very slow moving. They're not as quick to pick up on these niches. Um, and I think this day and age, everyone values speed. So I think the faster you can move and the more nimble that you are, you know, typically those are the ones that are going to win. If there's a huge decision that you're making, obviously it makes sense to really take your time. If it's sort of uh, one of these decisions that could lead to the overall kind of collapse of the business or major strategic shift. I think those are important decisions where you want to take a step back, you know, get some advice from your advisors, talk to each one of them, and then ultimately make a decision. But generally, more of the day-to-day stuff, I mean, it's okay to make mistakes because you're going to make mistakes anyway. It's just you don't want the mistakes to be really huge ones. Um, How about some tips on, I actually was talking to a gentleman this weekend at the, the conference who came up to me and he's asking about the difference between working in the business and on the business because he was burning himself out working in the business so much, although he was running, you know, a very successful business and um, making a good profit. So tips, tips for entrepreneurs that are struggling between working in the business and on the business, how they could recognize that and what they can do to shift. Yeah. So I think like for me, I mean, it's difficult because you're first getting started. Obviously, the business requires a lot of attention, um, requires a lot of your time. But I think what you need to be able to do is also feel comfortable delegating things to people um, so the business can ideally survive if you cease to exist. You know what I mean? It's sort of the mentality. Um, So the business is going to be more valuable if the business does, is it, if you're not required to be part of the business, you know, so if someone's looking to buy the company, they're not buying you, they're buying the business. Mm-hmm. And so does, can the business sustain, sustain itself on its own? How, how critical are you to actual, to the company's success? And the less critical you are to the day-to-day operations of the company, then the more value you're creating in the business. And so a lot of times for me, you know, the easiest way to do it used to be just going away for a couple weeks in the mountains and without the cell phone and, you know, and then come back in a couple of weeks and see how it did. And if it didn't do that great, then we've got some work to do, you know, <laughs> it's sort of an interesting experiment, I would say. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we're getting yourself sort of away from it, having time to sort of de- decompress and then to think at the business at a higher level, you know, on, on adventures and journeys like that's actually a very good thing. 
And a lot of times it's good for the teams too, because they want, sometimes they want that independence. That might be what they're craving, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and it's a kind of a good exercise to go through. So I think, you know, and then the more successful you are doing it, the more time you can take off and actually enjoy your life instead of having feeling pressured where you have to be there with the company every single day. Cause I think ultimately these businesses should be able to operate on their own. I mean, I think the strategic leadership and the vision and hiring the right people and kind of getting laying off people at the right times and all these things become super important. But you should really, if you're trying to create a business, especially if you're trying to build a business for sale, then, I mean, that should be like, uh, that should be kind of one of your, one of the things you're really shooting for is can the business sustain itself without me? What does that look like? try and build it so it can actually do that my one friend said it's almost like creating mcdonald's franchises like that sort of mentality where you're like you know, everything kind of becomes systematized and there's a process and you know so there's not everyone's looking for you when something goes wrong you know? that's a good point there's a lot of value in systems one thing that you've experienced dave that i think a lot of the entrepreneurs that are probably listening that haven't experienced is you you've been an entrepreneur for 20 years or so, you've navigated through quite a few different cycles and seeing the good times and the not so good times. And for a lot of the online entrepreneurs they that, that are out there today, they haven't. Most of them, I would say, are probably younger. And so they, and a lot of them haven't even experienced the recession since they've been an entrepreneur, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of talk back and forth, you know, American politics, global economics, everything is changing all the time the the value of the dollar is going up and down the value of gold then you have bitcoin so what would you recommend and i have a feeling and i'd like to get your intake on this but um, i have a feeling that there's going to be some more fluctuation in economies soon that may really affect the entrepreneurs that are out there especially digital entrepreneurs what would you say to them on um, your with your experience navigating cycles and do you what do you foresee in the next five to ten years happening with um, you could say the global economy or the internet economy or for um, digital internet entrepreneurs yeah it's interesting because uh, you know I guess things have changed but they haven't changed all that much really yeah I mean, obviously we've got now we've got the, the technology in our pockets which is really think the biggest change obviously allowing people to live this lifestyle um, although you probably could have done it before it just wouldn't have been, have been as easy and people were you know, traveling for work and all this stuff but nothing like today so i think we're in the midst of a, a major major shift just in kind of how people live and how people work how people vacation and sort of also the acceptance of these kind of older generations of what that might look like or should look like so um so anyway um I think the uh, you know the the uh, as we go through these kind of periods of shift, I think that the dot com period was obviously one of the bigger ones, um, and maybe that created Google. You know, <laughs> we had this other one, and maybe that created Facebook. So, I think when things go bad, um, that's actually when there's the most opportunity. So, yeah. I'm kind of like the uh, I'm like a cockroach, I guess. So I just try and survive <laughs> everything, and then <laughs> and if you survive, there's opportunities. So I think. Right now, what I would be doing is, I mean, really trying to pick your niche, kind to get your business going. And I wouldn't, you know, it's either feast or famine sometimes in these industries. So right now, if it's a feasting period, just recognize that. Set some money aside. Don't spend it all. <laughs> um, really take a close look at your business and see where it is that you are the best. And try to make sure you're well positioned that if something does adjust, you're not going to be impacted too negatively. 
I think the biggest thing for us in the early stages was like 80% of our clients were all these dot-com companies that had gone public and raised lots of money. So when the dot-com thing uh, period kind of dried up, all the funding dried up, there went those clients as well, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the one learning coming off that was to have a bigger base of more traditional customers. So if they are, it's fun to have some of these kind of more high-risk profile customers, but some of the more traditional customers, they tend to survive through these down periods. Um, what happened after the dot-com period was there was a lot of people that had gotten into digital and then other companies got wiped out and then a lot of the people ended up going back to work for these larger kind of Fortune 500 style companies, um, which I'm sure that's the last thing everyone on your show wants to do, but mm-hmm. you know, sometimes that is what happens. So the good thing is you do have all this experience. Worst case, you know, maybe you have to go back and take a corporate job for a little bit um, and regroup. Um, you know, or you just kind of make sure you just have a very sort of lean lifestyle and you can survive. And even if things do get bad for a couple of years, you have the ability to kind of make it through those periods. So um, I don't think I have like a magic answer for that. Uh, but the better the relationships are you have with your customers, the more stable they are, more stable the actual customers are, you know, the better you'll be able to kind of weather the storm, I would say. And then in terms of the global economy, um, you know, that's a difficult one, too. Um but I think overall, I think just from our perspective, um, you know, the acceptance of being able to live and really work from anywhere is changing a lot where it's a lot less. It'll be a lot less about um, sitting home in your underwear or going to the WeWork, but it'll be more about instead of taking a week or two week vacation, taking a month or two month trip and getting work done. So your work can really happen from anywhere. So I think that'll be much more accepted in the next 20 years. I think that's going to be a major segment of our population. And then I think as much as people have been going to work at the big companies and sort of had these longer term careers historically, now there's really no loyalty and it's much more of a gig economy. So I would expect things to go much more towards just a freelance driven economy. Um, and then we're compensated more like a freelancer. And that's also going to drive this sort of this kind of this uh, untethered kind of experience from the more traditional work world into this more global lifestyle, I guess. Um, but I think we're, you know, we're on the fringe of some sort of maybe blowout in the economy <laughs> at some point, just with everything going on in Asia, especially because you see what's going on there. That reminds me of like the early days of the dot-com and the regulations aren't quite as strong on their, uh, you know, for their, their businesses in terms of financial reporting requirements and things like that. So you have a little bit of uh, exuberance in the market right now. And so I think any sort of adjustment is actually a good thing for entrepreneurs because that's when most of the entrepreneurial opportunities are created. So I think the key is just to try and set yourself up so you can sustain yourself during those down periods and take advantage of it when, you know, wages aren't as high, there's more people available who want to work. And, uh, and then obviously new emerging kind of business opportunities too, not chasing after the old stuff, but what's really the next big thing and where's the, where can you really apply your expertise in a way that's, uh, you know, an area that's, that's more innovative and something where you're just a kind of a dime a dozen kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point. Dave, um, I think we're going to ask you one more co- question and then wrap up there. All right. From your experience, what would you say the difference in mentalities, the entrepreneur mentalities are between a five-figure mentality, a six-figure mentality, and seven-figure mentality, um, speaking about revenue per year? Okay. Um, well, I think uh, it really comes down to your, I think you got to kind of start with what are your personal objectives and then try to make sure you're sort of aligning your personal objectives and sort of the reality of sort of who you are as an individual and what you want with 
where you want to be. So your five-figure mentality is, in my mind, more of a lifestyle business. There's someone that wants to have a business. They want to be able to travel. They want to be able to work from home. And they don't want to deal with any employees. You know? <laughs> so point. that's kind of like, uh, which I think is, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a great way to live. And to be honest, sometimes it's much easier. Um, Six-figure mentality, I think, you know, is more, okay, you're looking, actually, you want to grow the business. I mean, maybe you've got, you're still the kind of a, the 1% of the smaller guys that's really doing well on your own. But generally, you know, you're, you've got a couple people that are working for you. So you've got a little bit more of an organization to run. Your responsibility for other people, and then you might even have an office <laughs> somewhere with the idea of the objective of getting to seven figure, um, but you haven't really hit the market fit quite yet. So six figure, I'd say you've hit on something, but you haven't hit on it at the level where it's actually an interesting business for an investor, for example. It's a good business for you. You're making good money, and you're kind of a you know, you've got a small little team, and that's great. But it's still like there's a certain mindset around that. And then is the mindset that you want to grow bigger? Are you happy with that? So I think that's you have to sort of you have to sort of realize that yourself because you can't have everything. If you want to grow bigger, then obviously it's going to require more sacrifice. You're going to have to hire more people. You have to make sure you have the right market fit. It's going to require more sales and operations. And then the seven figure mentality is much more geared around repeatable processes, um, market fit, how to acquire customers kind of building funnels, you know, mm -hmm. all of these things. Uh, and then ultimately, you do have like a fire under your ass because now you've got these employees and this infrastructure, and now you've, you've kind of created a machine that you've got to kind of feed every day. So it's you know, this is where you start getting into the mentality of working on the business, ha making sure you hire really, really good people to work for you, and then try to try and create a lot of loyalty kind of in the company with the idea being you want to get to a you know, even a larger eight-figure kind of deal. Um, and the seven figures, you might start getting interest. People might want to give you some investment. But I think typically once you hit a million, it's kind of the minimum hurdle for investors to get interested. I'd say in terms of overall revenue, if you really want to get acquired, I'd say minimum five to 10 million is usually the target range to start getting like a good valuation on the company. So a lot of people in the seven range start thinking, okay, what is, how much do I need to grow the business to sell it at some point in the future? Or, you know, they're just kind of thinking about it as, like, this could be a great business for me for the rest of my life, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like, you've got a great business and great people working for you, and you kind of hit on a niche. You know, there's no, you don't have to be, you don't have to sell the company. So, for me, I sold them just because we kind of reached the end of our rope in terms of our ability to execute, and it was getting very, very competitive. So, we had to kind of, you know, I think we wouldn't have been as successful if we had stuck with it. So, the timing was right for us, but for everyone, it, it's each their own, you know, everyone has their own path and kind of what their desires are, but trying to match what your interest and what your desires are personally with what you're trying to accomplish with a business, I think is very important because if you have a misalignment there, then uh, that's where these things don't go so well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Dave, Dave, we're going to wrap up there. I want to say thank you so right. much for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing all your tips, tricks, and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. If the listeners want to reach out and learn more about what you have going on, where's the best place they could do that at? Uh, let's see here. Yeah, just, uh, well, um, it's funny because I don't, I've just got my Skype. They can Skype me, <laughs> David, <laughs> David Nickel Williams, anytime. Um, email me, Dave at nomadx.com. Um, uh, or you can just, uh, look me up on LinkedIn or somewhere. Okay. 
We'll put, the, to get in touch. we'll put those links <laughs> in the show notes too, Dave, and especially the website for NomadX. You guys, I think it's a really cool up-and-coming concept, and I think it's something that can really help um, remote entrepreneurs around the world. So be sure and check that out. Dave, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Listeners, we want to thank you guys for joining in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Dave. Hey listeners, thanks for joining us once again. We wanted to remind you about our high performance productivity coaching and our annual Get Shit Done live retreat in Thailand. Both are designed for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs to get a lot of work done rapidly and whether you need some personal coaching while working away at home or a retreat in Thailand where you can get out of your normal routine and surround yourself with other successful entrepreneurs, we have those options for you. Check out all the details at thebusinessmethod.com and we'll see you on the next podcast.